criticism with any type of secure border policy always comes, well, you're not welcoming the stranger as Jesus taught us to do. Uh, is that really the truth? <laughs> everyone welcome back to the loopcast catholic votes weekly rundown for all things faith culture and politics and this week we decided to talk about what everyone's talking about it's immigration so many of you may have seen uh, news hits here and there you've seen crazy images at the border the border's a mess i think everyone kind of acknowledges that but not many people know exactly why and why everyone's talking about it this week and it has to do with something called title 42 so erica i know you did a lot of research on this what is title 42 and why is there so much panic about what could potentially happen at the border this week? Sure. So Title 42 was a Trump era regulation, and it was actually originally a COVID response to the public health emergency over COVID. So the um, officials looked at the border and they said, oh, my gosh, we have people just coming over and staying in these holding cells and being brought into the country during this time when this unknown virus is is wreaking havoc globally. So what the Trump administration did with Title 42 is they gave the authority to Border Patrol agents and to those working at border stations to immediately expel incoming migrants back into Mexico. So what it did was it essentially took a very what could be a very long, hours-long process for these Border Patrol agents, and they had the authority under the public health emergency to just turn them right around and in about 10 minutes get them back out of the country, back over the border. There were a lot of criticisms of it, whether or not it worked, but it is set to expire on May 11th when the Biden administration has declared, well, now COVID's done, no more public health emergency. So Title 42 is among the many COVID-era regulations and quote-unquote benefits um, that is going away uh, as of May 11th, 2023. And the interesting thing about Title 42 is a lot of the criticisms coming um, from Catholic circles and from, you know, from commentators is that it's inhumane and it's, you know, just this sort of willy-nilly applied to anyone coming over the border is turned back without any humanitarian care. But I did some research and Title 42 has only ever been applied to about one third of migrant cases processed at the southern border. And this comes from um, two sources, both Heritage Foundation and the New York Times. So I'm pretty confident um, in fiscal year 2021, Department of Homeland Security expelled just over a million migrants under Title 42, and just a little bit more than that, uh, 1.1 million in 2022, using, again, Title 42. Um, so that means that, yeah, it's about 30% of migrants are turned away. And the Biden administration over the last uh, 18 months has slowly been strangling Title 42's um, effectiveness or the ability of Border Patrol agents to use it. So they continually are putting strictions on who can be expelled under Title 42. So, for example, family groups may not be expelled under Title 42, uh, which is probably a good thing. They also have um, several countries, so Cuba, um, Honduras, Venezuela, people coming from these countries originating from these countries cannot be expelled under Title 42 either. Um, one of the things that interested me the most about it uh, is that that question of the time that it takes Border Patrol agents to process migrants who are coming through these border stations. Um, and I did a little bit of math. 
So basically, if one border station has to process 100 migrants, Title 42 can cut that time to process them um, from what under, you know, the old regulations, it would take five days. So a whole work week to process 100 migrants at a border station to just under 17 hours, a little more than one workday. So I have a status quo type question. So okay, go for it. We've talked about you talked about the caveats of like you can use Title 42 here. You can't. What if there was no Title 42? What's the standard operating procedure for the border if, say, a migrant comes over the border illegally? Sure. So if a border, if Title 42 goes away, and actually in most cases of people coming over the border, when they go through the legal process of checking in at a border station, um, they have to be processed legally. And what that can look like is if there's an asylum claim, for example, which is probably the most common uh, word thrown around right now, right? So there's an asylum claim, they're refugees from political oppression or something like that. Um, the Border Patrol agents have to go through a very lengthy questioning process. Then they will usually do what we call catch and release. So they arrest the migrants, or sorry, they, they take in the migrants, they do all the processing, and they assign them a court date. And they'll say, okay, we're going to release you into the country pending your asylum hearing. Please show up here at this date um, for your court hearing. Sometimes they keep track of them. Sometimes they don't. Currently, there's a backlog of 1.5 million asylum cases in the immigration system, and thousands more are being added daily. Um, and I was looking this up, too, in New York Times reporting, some migrants released this week will not actually get their first court appointment for a removal hearing until 2033. That's 10 years that they are going to be in the country waiting for an asylum hearing, um, and if nothing changes. If nothing changes. Exactly. So there's this enormous sort of catch and release into the country that we're seeing, and it's expected to just skyrocket I mean, we're talking about, after Title 42. That's like a small city. Um, like a, yeah. mil a million people, that's a small city of just people that... <laughs> that's a large that's not city. not a small city. <laughs> I grew up in a small city. It's <laughs> right. like 3,000 people. <laughs> we're talking an enormous city. We're talking like the, the population of, you know, southern New Hampshire. Right. Mm -hmm. The Detroit metro yeah. area. Wow. That's a lot of people. <laughs> Title 42 is kind of used as a, as a, well, I've also heard, is, is Remain in Mexico policy, some people may have heard as well, that's essentially the same policy, or are we talking about something different? Yeah, so, I mean, what, instead of just doing catch release, what the Trump administration did was to say, you know, people who are seeking asylum claims, okay, stay on the Mexico side, and we'll process it that way, and then when your time is up, you cross the border and come into your court hearing, and the Biden administration immediately got rid of that. And the court said, you didn't do it right. They slapped them down. And so the Biden administration said, okay. And they got the paperwork ready and they uh, did it again. And then the courts basically allowed it to go th um, to, to expire. Uh, and so we have, we're back to catch and release, which is this absurd thing. Like, you know, no nation would, would do this normally, but there, it's because we have this haphazard patchwork of immigration laws that were, you know, court orders plus, you know, a law here and a law there. And it's just, it's, it, we need reform. Now, this is where Chip Royce coming in. I think he's got a pretty good bill. Uh, you know, it, I think a lot of Catholics should give it, give it a second look. The idea behind what, what Chip Royce trying to do is, I mean, he would say you would, if you're coming to the, to the, to the U S border in Mexico and you've traveled from, you know, through Central America or something like that, and you intend a, a claim a and you intend to make an asylum claim, you would be detained inside Mexico, basically. And you, you can make your claim, but then 
you wouldn't just automatically be given entry into the country. There would be a lot more reforms placed on that to make sure that you actually have a, a legitimate attempt at an asylum claim because what we've seen is an explosion in asylum claims. You know, the number of people who are facing, you know, poverty, okay, that's one thing, or, you know, not the best conditions, that's one thing. But, the, the you know, the asylum laws are created for those who are seeking to escape political persecution. So people who are leaving Cuba or back in the day, you know, the old Soviet, you know, block you know, behind the, 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 the Berlin Wall, you know, people from East Germany or Poland that were trying to get away from communism. That was the understanding of, of, of political persecution. And it's now just been expanded to, you know, we want to seek a better life in the United States. And I, I mean, look, I understand that they would want that, but that doesn't mean that our, that's not what the asylum laws were intended for. And so we're seeing a, a, an exponential spike in the number of claims on asylum. As you said, 10, it's going to take 10 years to try to you know, go through all these claims. So it tells us that something's got way out of hand and we need to have a reform here. So Chip Royce got a bill you know, that would try to uh, reform the asylum process, get down to the true legitimate claims, make sure that they're uh, on the Mexico side of things first, and then also direct the secretary, hey, you got to finish this border stuff. Congress appropriated funds for you to work on this border wall and work on you know, securing things and patching up holes that are in there. You got to fix that. So those are just kind of common sense things. But um, I look forward to a robust debate because I think Americans are going to be frustrated again, like when they just see, you know, tens of thousands of people trying to cross the border illegally. It's like, you know, the United States is a very generous people, but that doesn't mean we want an open door policy. And that's effectively what we have right now. And that is doing damage to people in this country who, you know, have to compete um, with, uh, you know, un, unskilled labor, uh, that's a big problem. But it's also just a problem is disruptive. Here's the thing, like when Governor Abbott and Governor DeSantis started sending migrants that came into their state up to, let's say, you know, Martha's Vineyard or New York City or Chicago, and for a while there, the, the, the mayors of Chicago and, and New York City were like, well, you know, we're a sanctuary city, that's fine, we're okay with that, and we don't like your political stunt, but we love people, so we're okay with that. That's what they said for the first month or two, but then as more and more buses of migrants came and it became a real question and an actual concern, not some PR debate, they started realizing, wait a minute, where are we going to go with all these migrants? How are we going to take care of them? Are we going to feed them? Where, where are they going to sleep? And they started saying, you know, the mayors now of New York City and Chicago are saying, we can't take any more. Stop sending them uh, uh, more migrants to us. And it's like, well, suddenly now you care about this problem. But the people in Texas, in Arizona, California, and the surrounding states even, uh, like Colorado and that kind of stuff, have right. had to deal with this for a long time. And well, you've and totally ignored alone, the problem. Mayor, Mayor Eric Adams in New York, he said, I'm going to start busing migrants from New York City where they're staying. And over 100 hotels have been requisitioned by the government um, and are housing these migrants. So we're, we're, we have too many. The hotels are full. We can't force any more to take illegal immigrants while they're waiting for asylum hearings. So we're going to start busing them out to Orange County, Westchester County. And you can bet the mayors of those cities got right on him and said, oh, no, we don't want them. And then I read in the New York Times, I can't believe it's like the second time I've mentioned the New York Times, this episode already. This is something that I promise won't happen again. Maya Maxima Culpa. But they had a really good profile piece <laughs> of a priest down at Sacred Heart Church in El Paso. And he was um, interviewed by the reporter he was talking about how, you know, two months ago, he would maybe have a dozen 
migrants come through a week. And they would you know, want to sleep on the pews or in the courtyard just for some shelter and get some food. And of course, the Catholic Church is caring for them and trying to help them. But in the last two weeks, he says, it's been thousands. It was just like the floodgates were opened with the people no Title 42 is expiring. They don't see any movement from the Biden administration to put anything in its place. Um, and they know Congress will take a long time. Like, I, I appreciate Chip Roy's bill. I think it's got some great ideas in it. But it takes time. Robust debate in Congress and Congress taking action takes time. And people coming to the country are willing to bet on that. But this priest was describing there are people in tent cities all over the streets and the sidewalks of his city outside his church. They don't have enough food to give them. And it, it, just listening to his um, his deep desire to help them, but also uh, the acknowledgement that, look, the system has utterly failed, not only the American people, but also these migrants who have come across these families. Um, yeah, these and I want to touch on that, too, because I think uh, criticism with any type of secure border policy always comes, well, you're not welcoming the stranger, as Jesus taught us to do, and you're not allowing agent, uh, you know, charitable agencies to take care of people at the border. You're kind of leaving them out to dry. Uh, what would you have to say back to that type of criticism? It happens all the time. Seamless garment type Catholics love saying it. Uh, is that really the truth to you? No, I mean, I think that the there has been a lot of criticism um, from Catholic organizations of bills like Chip Roy saying, OK, well, yeah, you're not welcoming the stranger. We need to be. I, I think that it's a false dichotomy to say that Catholics have to decide between protecting their own country and respecting the Constitution and welcoming the stranger. It's that's it's sort of like the easy out. It's the the answer. Well, I don't want to think too hard about just saying, OK, open borders, everybody come on over. No problem. That's an easy out. And it's also um, it's a dereliction of duty to the people in your own country. The idea of sovereign countries and, um, you know, sovereign borders is part of Catholic social teaching as well. The idea that particular communities and particular nations have their own particular goods to be preserved. That's a, that is a deep, deep part of Judeo-Christian morality. And so we have to do the hard work of how can we do both? How can we have a system where we are welcoming those who need refuge and serving them? Um, how can we help people remain in their own countries without enabling corrupt governments? Um, how can we help them in those ways? Like, let's have some creative discussion and robust discussion about this instead of just like, you're either all one or all the other. You don't want migrants, you're evil. You you don't want, you know, you you hate Americans, you're evil, right? That's that's my take on it. Yeah, well, I, I, I feel like in the, you know, 60s, 70s, 80s, even into the 90s, the Americans were like kind of okay a little bit. They didn't want, uh, you know, complete recklessness at the border, but we would, no one was really opposed to people that would help migrants as they cross the border, like get food and shelter. It's just that we don't want it, you know, like, look, a lot of the border is, you know, like parts of Arizona, it's desert. It's not like safe. And so the, the point is, if you have a, 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 a system of legal migration where you say, we're going to allow this many people and we're going to secure the rest of the border, that means it's a it's less dangerous. You're not cr trying to cross into the country in parts, you know, like deserted, deserted areas, and you're also not incentivizing coyotes, these these nasty people, uh, these gangs in Mexico that make money by smuggling men, uh, men, women, and children 
and children are, 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 are used as a way to, oh, well, you know, the United States feels really guilty about when family separation. So then it's more valuable to have minors. So then minors cross the border, then they come back through and they go again, and they go cross again. And then these young girls and ladies are routinely sexually abused by these coyotes. And so it's like, why would we want the current system? Like, in fact, what we should try to do is have a more secure border, have a legal process and have an understanding of who is crossing who and when and how many. And, it, and I say this, this quote here, can borders be controlled? Yes, each country has a right to control its borders. Who enters and who leaves? And countries that are in danger of terrorism or the like have more right to control them. That's Pope Francis. Yeah. The fact is the Catholic Church believes in sensible laws. And the fact is we have to consider what the current system, which is a basically no border, yeah. right? It's a lawless system and coyotes are abusing it and they're smuggling people up, up through Mexico into the United States. That system is abusive. And it's also, once they get into this country, you have a system where people, if they don't have uh, documentation and they're here in this country illegally, they have to bid cheaper for their labor, right? And so they'll go to a construction site and say, I know you normally pay people, let's say, you know, $25 an hour. I'll do it for 17 because, you know, you'll save money. You're not going to pay taxes on because I'm illegal and they do this kind of stuff. So there's an underhanded market. Did you see what happened in Florida last week? Classic example, they finally passed E-Verify, where you have to verify each and every individual working in, in, you know, for every company. And so this guy gets on there, someone recorded it. This guy's on this construction site in Miami. He says, I'm sorry, if you don't have documentation, we can't hire you anymore. And so like the bleeding heart of us would say, oh, that's terrible. All those people, they're going to lose their income and they're going to lose their livelihood. And I'm thinking to myself, what we're trying to do is set up a system where employers can't exploit workers anymore and they have to actually pay them a living wage. That's what we want, okay? That's the system we want. The current system prevents that. So Florida, they're trying to say, we're going to actually make sure that employers aren't hiring illegal workers in order to undercut the wages, a, a living wage. Yeah, that's abuse in so itself. I applaud Florida for yeah, doing that. I agree. And the craziest thing to me is that uh, Mayorkas still has a job. It's unbelievable to me that he's not impeached. He can go in front of Congress with a straight face. He's the Homeland, Homeland Security. Homeland, uh, director of Homeland Security. Yeah, director of Homeland Security. And he just looks at congressmen and tells them the border's secure and that everything's fine. And all of the numbers, it's just like, it's like we live in a bizarre world. Right. It's, it's crazy. Well, in so, his testimony, I think it was last week, he said they were, they were asking him you know, to account for the surge in migrants at the when Title 42 expires. And he was just get, oh, yeah, there's going to be a huge surge. And I believe DHS put out the numbers. You know, we're going to go from between seven and 9,000 uh, migrant encounters at the border per day. Um, probably end of this week, we're looking at between 13,000 and 18,000 encounters per day at the southern border. Mayorkas is just like, oh, yeah, that's probably going to happen. And it's because of the disinformation that is being spread to cartel and coyotes and smugglers. So he's blaming He's blaming the surge in migrants on disinformation. And he goes, our border is not, is not open. And after May 11th, it will still not be open. And again, like he's saying this immediately after confirming these numbers. You're just like, what planet are we <laughs> rotating on here? Right. Like, anyway, 
Facts don't care about you your feelings, and he doesn't care about facts. You would think a you would think a federal government, yeah. right? You would think a federal government would be concerned about securing a border, a national border. In that the seems like of the nation. Number one, how like, you can't right? you can't have borders. a nation. What is but higher than number you one? You can't have a nation without borders, right? right. Am I crazy it, on that? Like you, that doesn't right. exist. That Your sounds nation, right. Every nation has borders. That's the point of a nation. Mm-hmm. America is not an idea. Josh, you hate this when people do this. They're like, America is this idea, and we're no, all no, no. American. I hate that so it's much. like, no, America is a country with laws, with a constitution that should be serious about itself. Right. It might not be now, but yeah, it's no, it's not an idea. And it's a place. Part of America. No, we have a we have a federal government that doesn't protect the border, but then we'll go after people like Mark Hawk and arrest them for and, and murder children for protecting and murder babies a- at, at every turn. Yeah, actually, that's true. We have a defense department. What is the first order of business for any government is to pr- provide a you know national defense, and so they don't take care of the border. And instead of focusing on an actual a strong military that can you know protect us from invaders and hello. They got drag queens in the Navy trying to recruit people to join the military. And then you have the, the Secretary of Defense using the military's budget to shuffle um, military women to different states so they can kill their babies. And it's like, you know, they're doing this on purpose, guys. They're, they, it's not, uh, people are saying it's, it's destroying the military. Actually, they're building a different kind of military. Well, that was chilling. That could be a... Yikes. Did we just enter the twilight zone? We're only at 21 minutes. Not yet. Yeah, not yet. Oh, no, 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 no. Yeah. But uh, yeah, no, bonus, bonus material here. Bonus material here. Uh, Erica actually got to, the loop cast goes uh, to the Senate. Uh, Erica actually got to speak to Tommy Tuberville, yeah. a former Auburn coach, current freshman senator from Alabama. And they uh, went into great detail on exactly what the Department of Defense is doing, how they're shuffling around for abortions, and what Senator Tuberville is doing to actually halt those abortions. Standing on a hill, uh, I just loved listening to his southern drawl. Awesome. But he also was very articulate and just he 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 knew it, it was a, it felt like he didn't need to address anything up. He's like, "Yep, this is what I'm doing because this is what I believe and this is what I owe to the people of Alabama and the people of the country." Yeah, so awesome. he's speaking. Oh, so it's awesome! So when you're done with this one, go check that one out. Um, we released it right before this one. Uh, okay, so we move on, and I, actually, a lot of this is related, unfortunately. So uh, we had some more violence in our country. Uh, earlier this week, specifically in Texas, two instances. Uh, one was a shooting uh, in a mall. Uh, it took the lives of six people. And then there was also a manslaughter with a car. Uh, someone drove it into a crowd. Uh, and then also related as well in New York, we had a situation, a man named Jordan Neely, uh, who was clearly, uh, he was homeless, had mental uh, issues, uh, a long rap sheet about 40 misdemeanors. I think he was at a warrant out for his arrest. Uh, he was aggressive on the subway and the ex-Marine took him out uh, with a chokehold to restrain him. And unfortunately that caused the end of his life. And so we've seen a lot of protests in New York City because of that. Uh, some people picking sides on that one. I think here at the Loopcast, we have some insight into this just feels like it's just overwhelming. It feels like it keeps happening. It feels like there's no change. Uh, who, who, I guess, rightfully receives the blame in this situation? Why have these things just seemingly accelerated? The, the, the use of guns for mass shootings is a 21st century problem. We, had the, we have had the Second Amendment for 
200 plus years. Uh, the Second Amendment did not have a, you know, did not create a problem in the 1700s, 1800s, really even into the 1900s. It really became a problem. And it's not the Second Amendment that became a problem. I'm talking about the idea of mass shootings really started. In a, I mean, not that it never happened before, but it really well, began definitely not, definitely not in 1999 schools. with definitely Columbine. Well, I'm just saying, like it, yeah, exactly. Yeah, uh, you know, mm -hmm. Col uh, Columbine was 1999. I I graduated from college then, and so I did not grow up at all, uh, as kids nowadays are concerned about violence in schools. I didn't. No one was concerned about mass shootings. I, I went through all my grade school, high school, college, and there was I don't remember any mass shootings. So the first one really was Columbine in 1999. And you, then it's been a problem ever since, like, you know, Oxford, Michigan, it wasn't that long ago here in my state. Um, I know that's where you grew, yep. near where you grew up, Tom. And I think to myself, again, this is a 21st century problem. And how, why is it a 21st century problem? What happened? In other words, the left likes to say it's the guns. And it's like, well, we had guns for 200 years. And we didn't have problems of, of people deciding to take guns and just start randomly killing a bunch of people like it's a video game, okay? And I'm not blaming just video games. If the idea that you could diagnose one thing, like it's got to be this one thing, mm -hmm. I'm always skeptical about that anyway, because usually a problem's got multiple right. layers. But I do say that it is an attack on the Judeo-Christian lifestyle, like, not lifestyle, Judeo-Christian teachings. For this country, this country was a Judeo-Christian country for 200 years. And in the last, like, 40 years, the left declared war on that. They said no prayer in public schools, no prayer in public life really at all. And culturally, it was disdain to express yourself. Like, I remember growing up and people were like, you know, is it okay to pray, like, at a restaurant in public? You know, there's just this, you know, this deep uh, secularism against religious expression. And the left has been, you know, celebrating, uh, going, you know, attacking religion and attacking morality, and you can't even pledge allegiance to the flag, which isn't a religious thing, but it's a thing that kind of tries to unite us behind at least some core values. And the left's like, no, you can't even do that. And the left has promoted <laughs> nihilism in, in culture. They've promoted movies that are just, you know, completely vapid, uh, total sexual immorality and violence and that kind of stuff. And they profit from it and they have no problem with it. They put out rap music that's, you know, cop killer stuff. You know, that was in the, in the, in the 90s. And so kids that are raised in this environment, you know, it, it's a different world. It, you know, so I, I try to tell people, like, I'm Generation X, I'm 46, that, you know, so the people older than me might have a little bit harder time understanding this, but you, you've got... You're awash in violent video games, pornography, movies, all this kind of stuff that, it's yeah, gonna it's going to be behavior. different. So I right. think the problem, yeah, absolutely. I think the problem here is we've, just, we've attacked, you know, it doesn't even, we could suddenly become, you know, 100% Jewish country or 100% Muslim country. And if we all became devout, there would be a lot less violence. Okay. I'm not suggesting I'm, this is what I'm calling for. The fact is we've been shoving this, you know, anarchist, you know, nasty, nihilist, you know, worldview that uh, on everybody and, you know, everyone's a commodity and there's no inherent dignity. You're, Christians promoted the view that we're all created in God's image. And 
you know, for 160 years or whatever it was, we were mostly a Christian nation. And these mass shootings were almost unheard of. And we decided to depart from that, and we embraced this aggressive form of state-sponsored secularism, and suddenly, you know, people are watching these horrible movies and acting them out real life. And I think that the other piece is, yes, um, the Judeo-Christian tradition gave us the the conviction and the truth that we're all created in God's image. It also gave us the um, the principle of equal justice under the law for individuals, that as individuals we're responsible to the law. We answer to God as individuals. Um, and what we saw from the left in the last, you know, 40 years is this rise of the of the group identity that somehow belonging to certain groups absolves you of your individual behavior. And that's not some like lofty philosophical concept that has no bearing on how people actually act out in the world. I mean, we saw this week there were multiple uh, TikTok videos coming out from younger high school students of, um, you know, a, a black boy beating up a white boy violently for using the N-word. The white boy is trying to apologize to him. He's saying, I made a mistake. And the, the black kid is like yelling and yelling and yelling at him using the word and then finally just lets him have it. Um, and then we also saw this horrible case in Texas of six-year-old boys um, essentially you know, raping a, a girl in their class while the teacher was present and then the school trying to cover it up. But we see this sort of the, the, um, that this whole leftist message that if you belong to certain groups, you're not responsible for your behavior. It's actually your victims that are responsible for your behavior. So if you go and shoot someone up, um, it's because you were a victim first. or and, and that kind of messaging that has really been on the rise. Mm-hmm. Nashville shoot, shooting comes to mind. Nashville sure. yeah, shooting Just to give you an example, so like what you said, with, well, in the subway thing in New York City, so like 40 or 50 years ago, everyone would have sort of understood, well, someone who's screaming and yelling and flailing about and threatening to kill, hurt or harm somebody in this on a subway train where you're kind of trapped, right? You can't just run up the stairs. You're in the train, and someone and someone you know subdues that person and 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 tries to get them on you know this wild person under control. And unfortunately, the person dies. Most people forty years ago would have been like, ah, it's a tragic accident. Okay, and uh, but I'm glad he stopped him. And but now it's like a debate. Yeah. Now it's a debate. You know, like this guy. Sh- he he murdered him. It's terrible. It's like I mean, are you, for anyone are you who kidding saw me? The, for anyone who like, saw the video too, it, it's really crazy to me. People can even make arguments the other way because there was one person on the chokehold, but then there was two other people helping to restrain, and then eventually the full video comes out on Twitter, and there's other people thanking him for doing what he's doing, t- telling him, okay, now position him this way so that he doesn't end up, you know, choking on his tongue or whatever. Mm-hmm. There there clearly was not this like vigilante racist aggression from someone choking him out like it was obviously him taking like protecting other people on the train from someone who has a a violent past who's clearly acted erratically whatever and it was unbelievable if i could finish that the treatment that this jordan neely has received in the media there's this picture of him in front of uh, radio city looking like michael jackson and everyone's like this guy was a you know, joy to the community, yada, 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 like literally like he, making him look like a saint. I mean, it reminds me of how they treated George Floyd as well. And, you know, rest in peace to both of them. I pray for the repose of their soul. But the point, it's so obvious to me. Why? 
why is there not a glowing profile of this brave Marine who protected all these people? And it's because there's an agenda behind it. You could do the same thing and reward him for what he did, but instead they're trying to turn this guy into some kind of saint, some kind of martyr, trying to rile people up to go right. and, and Al That's Sharpton, wrong to me. Al Sharpton came out and he starts lecturing, oh, famous lecturing the famous. public. He goes, we can't have vigilante justice. We can't allow people you know, to get up if there's danger. We can't have them taking the law into their own hands. Well, Al Sharpton was more than happy to allow people during the George Floyd riots in 2020 to take the law into their own <laughs> hands and to seek right, restitution yeah. for hundreds of years of oppression by on their own without any regard for the law. So, yeah, it's just part of painting, painting a false picture of what went on that day in the subway. That's why I think when we get discouraged, we have to look at each of these instances on its own merits, look at the actions of the people involved on their own merits according to the facts as we understand them, and not get caught up in these massive narratives of, oh, my gosh, vigilante justice. It's, it's just, it's so frustrating. <laughs> That's why Twitter... Seriously, God bless Twitter because so much like the actual full footage came out on Twitter. You wouldn't find it on the New York Times. No, no offense. I know you're in love with the New York Times, Erica. Ah, but, you know, no, I know this. It's it's good that we have. It's good that we have social media so we can spread, you know, the truth on so, certain circumstances like this. But it only goes so far because we still have the main mainstream left wing media, you know, response. And so if you asked like a hundred people randomly and polled them. And said, "Hey, Kyle Rittenhouse, remember that guy? He's like 18 years old, and he was at the, he went to Kenosha, Wisconsin. He said he was going to defend businesses, and he and he shot two people. Do you remember that? And if you ask people, they're like, oh yeah, he shot two black kids, because that's how the media kept trying remember. to represent it. Mm -hmm. They kept leading you to think right. that that's yeah. what he did, and it wasn't two black kids. It was two white guys, you know, and and, and they were trying to shoot him. <laughs> they were actually and trying one, to kill you him. You know, one turned out to be a pedophile, yeah. by the way." And uh, it just so happens that a pedophile was an Antifa member, crazy. Um, but the thing is, you know, not that uh, you, when you look at race relations in this country, it was like, I, I, you know, it's hard, to, again, just like with the nihilism of like the school shootings and stuff like that, like it was better in 1995 than it is now, okay? And it is on race too. Like, there were hiccups, okay? There were massive problems. I mean, Rodney King happened in 1991. I'm not blind to this stuff, okay? I get it. But in the 1990s as a whole, it was a lot better than it is right now in race relations. And it's not just this white guy saying it. Blacks in the 90s said race relations was, you know, what do you think race relations? They thought of it as better than they do now. And Erica, you, you brought this up, uh, this clip from two years ago, Mary Eberstadt, where she said that, the, the, to humanize this all, the, the clear part is that people feel like they don't have communities. They, they And this nihilistic uh, philosophy has killed a lot of communities that people maybe had before. So say, right. for example, right. their church community, their family. Think about the attack on the family over the past couple of years. Divorces, uh, LGBT, LGBTQ movement, uh, isolating kids with that. Um, so people just feel like they don't have community. Right. Yeah. I love the way she put it because it, this happened on, this was on a, it's called Trigonometry. Great podcast. I really enjoy it. Little salty language, fair warning, uh, but I'll put the clip in the show notes. But they were asking her, okay, what's wrong with the West? And the, is it feminism? Is it this ideology? Is it racism? And she said, no, I think it's much more primal than that. It's that we have a generation of, of people 
who as children were unable to form healthy attachments. Like you were saying, they don't have a good father relationship. They don't have a family um, to fall back on, you know, when things get rough. And, and I think, you know, pinpointing it to all of these, these people who run people over, they shoot up um, homes, they, they overdose on drugs, the rise in antidepressants, all of this. When we see that, we have to realize that for every person who does that, there's some hole in their life that the left was able to get in there, kind of like Satan, right? I mean, there is a hole in their life. There's a void where there should be a healthy relationship, be it with God, be it with a parent, be it with siblings. Um, and it's it's empty and it has to be filled. And so I think the left's message yeah. of nihilism and there's no purpose fills that hole. And that's why we see this. Who has been in charge of literally every institution for the past however many years? It's liberals. Yeah, last 40 years. Last 40 years, it's the left. Yeah, universities, Correct. media. You know, entertainment industry, yeah. everything. It's been right. owned wholesale. And and when has all this accelerated the wrong way? This is their this is, this is what the left has created. They've created a society that's that's detached from family, neighborhood, uh, local community or, or church. And suddenly you've got a couple of generations that are very nihilist and they lash out or they're depressed and they kill themselves. It's like, you know, and and the whole time, you know, social conservatives have been warning, hey. Don't do this. Like divorce is bad, church is good. Like let's try to bring things back together. Fa we need fathers. All this stuff, you know, abortion is horrible, pornography bad. You know, we we understand these things. It's not like we're trying to rule, run your life and and point your a finger at you and say you're a sinner. It's like there are things that will lead to despair, you know, and and heartbreak and isolation, and we should avoid those. And you know, we should try to speaking of. Josh, it's like, it's that's not, a perfect segue perfect. into a very positive moment from this past week. So uh, happy graduation week to many people. I believe it was last week or this week for a lot of people. Uh, congrats on a lot of hard work. If you're graduating, that's a big accomplishment. And so with graduation comes commencement speeches. So uh, we had a lot of commencement speeches across the country, and I'm going to let you know a secret. Most of them are total garbage. They will just tell you to chase your dreams. They'll go find you know some celebrity to tell you to chase your dreams. You'll forget about it tomorrow. It's not going to leave a lasting impact. But one really did stick out, and it was from a kicker of all people. So Harrison Bucker has been talked about a lot in this program. Uh, may, who knows? Maybe we'll interview him one day. But he gave a commencement speech at Georgia Tech University, his alma mater. And it really made the rounds of social media. We clipped it here for our social media at Catholic Vote. And I think the reason why it did is, is it spoke to what Josh was saying. There was a moment in the speech where he himself even said, I'm going to offer some controversial advice here. You know, go get married and start a family, leave your legacy. The reason being is we have too many people that are going to come up here on the stage and tell you uh, to go chase your dreams, overachieve, be successful, make a lot of money, fly private. He said, I know far too many people who do all of those things and who are completely miserable and hate their lives. The only way to leave that lasting impact and to have a life of satisfaction and purpose is to start a family, is to invest in your community. And I think it, it was like, it was so, from a kicker of all people, there's people <laughs> that are paid to speak for a living that have given way worse speeches. So shout out to Harrison, but what, what did, how did that speech make you feel relative to all the other speeches going on around the country? Oh, it was just a breath of fresh air. <laughs> it's great. Get married, start a family. I loved watching the reaction on the faces of the people sitting behind him. One guy just like broke into spontaneous applause a bunch of the women just kind of like looked up in the sky 
I don't know if they were even listening to him. But you could hear the you could hear the audience in front of him laugh, and some people start clapping and got some cheers. It was. Yeah. It's a controversial thing to say. I mean, because how many young people get that message from their families, their parents, their school that the most important thing is you know get your career started, um, you know find your trajectory, and then you know maybe later on when you're ready, quote unquote, get married, and then maybe later on maybe have one or two kids, but. He like turned that on its head and said, this is the key to happiness. I had the privilege of talking to my lovely wife and uh, one of my best friends. I've known him forever. Shout out to both of them. And we dove into a lot of these kind of topics because uh, so my friend, he lives on D.C. now. And he was talking about how uh, there's some people kind of in the social circles there who are maybe women who have been able to make a lot of money, have a lot of career success, who, you know, by the time they start drinking at the bar, it starts coming out how how you know depressed they are how lonely they are how their their timeline is running out to have kids how they desire to have kids but they don't know anyone that they'd even want to have kids with so now the conversation is well do i freeze my eggs like what's going on here now i want to start it and so that kind of led us to, to start talking about how did how have women kind of taken the lie i think that stems from feminism but i think it goes deeper than that that uh, you know, you your worth is determined in, you know, do you graduate from the best college? Do you go and get the best job? Can you support yourself? Um, and so I feel like by the time and then a big part of this, too, is birth control. I think so many women have been just sold that, OK, you need to get on this right away. It's a panacea. It solves all kinds of problems, whether it's acne when you're younger or whether it's you want to have casual sex. It solves everything. Stay on it. It's safe. It's fine. And then it affects you chemically. It affects you. It really, I mean, weight gain, mood swings, uh, it, it, you name it. There's all kinds of side effects. And so you get to that place where you're 30 and now all of a sudden you, you've done, you've reached the mountain of what's been promised to you. And yet I think a lot of people clearly, as we've, we know people like this now, are not happy and feel lonely. And I think Harrison's advice is the exact opposite of that, is the antidote to that. If you start off by prioritizing your vocation or searching for that vocation or for getting further down that path of vocation sooner, your vocation isn't to work in a cubicle for a big, but I'm just going to pop the bubble there. No one's vocation is to work in a cubicle farm, uh, you know, for, to make a lot of money to drive around to Benz or whatever. Your vocation is to either start a family or religious life or that single way life. But even when you do that, you find your purpose way sooner. You know, I don't, I don't know if right. anyone's yeah, I mean, searching for a purpose sooner. How many people, I guess. How many people on their deathbed say, if I only spent one time <laughs> Some people, I, yeah, I don't know. It's a good but... point. I think, too, yeah, like you were saying, the way that Harrison framed it was so great. Um, but also, we can look at examples of women who, you know, put family first and God first, but and also then went on to have what the world would characterize as a quote-unquote successful career. Um, plenty that didn't as well, but... Well, I mean, so for example, I think of Amy Coney Barrett, like she has seven children, including a child with Down syndrome, um, and she is a Supreme Court justice. And we think of, um, you know, people like, uh, you know, I'm kind of a geek, so I'm going to go with philosophy, but like Elizabeth Anscombe, who has multiple children, and she's a great philosopher, and we have... And and also, don't forget about Luke Casco. Oh, Josh. Josh, that's so sweet. Thank you. I'll take that as my early Mother's Day shout out. Thanks, Josh. Well, I mean, the thing is, like, you can look at someone like Amy Coney Barrett and say, it can almost be daunting, actually. You know, I know that you say it as a way of saying, look, 
women can be raised seven kids and then also have a family. A lot of people look at that and say, she's, you know, she's like Wonder Woman. There's no way that, that I could emulate that. Women, women might say, right? Because she, she, you know, graduated from, I don't know if she went to Notre Dame Law or she, I know she taught there. And it's like, gosh, that's almost too tall of a task. It's like, no, actually, you know what? The thing is, people can have, you know, second mm-hmm. uh, careers or whatever. And, and it's just like trying to like let women know like, hey, you know, there's nothing wrong. Of course, it's actually normal mm-hmm. to want to have a family. And to the extent that we can, you know, you, you make it available, look, consider, let's say, career paths where you can take a break. My wife was a nurse uh, and she took, you know, a 15 year break, break to, uh, to raise uh, six little mercy <laughs> children. Good Thank job, you. Lori. Um, you know, and then she's able to go back into it for a while. Uh, and and, uh, and so those are options for people um, yeah, I think to just consider. Like so open conversations about alternative yeah, career paths. And, you know, there's some great work being done from um, Erica Bakiaki's group, the Abigail Adams Institute and Ethics and Public Policy Center has some fellows working on ideas of how to how to promote a workplace that's more friendly, not only to motherhood, but to fatherhood as well. And and not. Yes, now, you here, can. Can I interrupt on <laughs> this for a second, <laughs> though? Because interrupting the lady in the chat. Uh. No, it's like that. The idea was that, like, you know, some conservatives had this idea of like the 1950s, which is kind of a yeah, historical aberration. Kind of weird. Because we, you know, uh, in the immediate aftermath of the post uh, war world, like European cities were like decimated or whatever. And like the industrial might of the United States, we were in a very competitive advantage situation with the whole world, really. Like, where would you have the United Nations? I'm not a big fan of the United Nations, but where would you have it? I mean, London was bombed. You're not going to have it there. Paris was just recently liberated. Like, you had to have it in, in, in New York City. Where else are you going to have it, right? Like, and so, like, the 1950s were this time period where we were able to produce goods and sell it to the whole world for a while there, right? And so we made, we did fairly well. We had kind of a boom. So all these women could stay in the workforce at home. Um if you want to t- talk about like a more of a historical pattern, the more normal thing was like you would have a butcher shop, let's say a butcher, and he would work and he, the house was up above you. You know, you you live up and so the kids would come down or the wife would help out and it was a family business. Like this idea, like in the 50s where the dad goes off to work and then comes back home and she never has to work, you know, I mean, that's not a bad thing. I'm not saying anything. I think it's great. You know, but I'm just trying to help people understand, like, there are ways to do it. Like, uh, you know, women can have, they could work out of the home, like with, with internet that's technology. Me. That's, it's amazing. Mm. People can do stuff like that. They can start their own businesses. They can do writing, <laughs> editing, like Erica. Yeah. There, there are, are options, many options. You know, so, so. If you put first things, well, I just want to put, point out too, like the idea is you put first things first, and that is your family, your children, um, honoring your body, like the reality that females body, we do have a biological clock. It is a lot harder to get pregnant and bear children after 35. And if girls, like we just have to be real about that. That's not changing. So, you know, honoring your body and, you know, the the fertility clock that God has designed us with and prioritizing relationships with your husband and your children then the rest of it is more able to fall into place and be more than just cog in the wheel. I go to the office and I have a career as like an office assistant at the medical building downtown. Like then, yeah, this whole idea that like, oh, women have careers now. I mean, so many women are just cogs, have jobs that are cog in the wheel jobs. These aren't like glorious careers that most 
most of us are working at. But okay, I, that's probably yeah, but even that, if but. even if it. But I was going to say, even if it is glor, even if it is glorious, even if you got the greatest job, you've reached the height of uh, academic achievement or of work achievement. Right. If you're outsourcing the most important things in your life, a- aka your relationships, say to your spouse or to your kids, if you're outsourcing the education or upbringing of your children, or even having kids in general, that's not a thing that a healthy society does because a healthy society can't continue unless they have strong families and kids. Right, which is right? why, which is why it drives me crazy when people are like, oh. You know, the left is so much better about maternity leave and paternity leave. And no, that's not what's going on with these policies being, you know, we're going to have universal daycare so women can get back to work. Those are policies that actually are breaking down the family further because it is. It's delegating your role as a parent to back to the state and saying, okay, well, the state's going to pay for daycare. The state's going to pay for all their meals. The state's going to. That's not promoting the family, and that's not promoting a world in which people find meaning in their jobs because of their children and because that they're ordered. Yeah, corp- the corporate world likes policies like that. Right. That Let's get the women the back in the workplace. Because Productive it, cogs. It, it, mm-hmm. Yeah, that's so, right. Yeah, and that's why they, they love abortion policy too. Right. They, they offer very comprehensive abortion policy. Children are inconvenient for, for big companies, and that's a good thing. So, moving into the Twilight Zone, Josh, we got you up first. What's on your mind? Uh, my my uh, ancestors left England in the uh, 1700s. They came here to, first to Pennsylvania, so um, back when it was still part of you know England, the colonies. But eventually, my family uh, joined the uh, militia and uh, Pennsylvania militia and and took up uh, arms against the the British. And uh, since then, I'm proud to say I'm an American, and uh, I I don't have to care about the coronation. <laughs> Of a of a new king in England, but I did find it interesting that uh, John Kerry, uh, the former presidential candidate for the Democrats back in two thousand four, pro abortion, so called Catholic, uh, he was over there at the coronation. That's fine if he wants to go, but uh, uh, on his suit coat he was wearing a whole bunch of his Vietnam uh, War medals. Now, for those of you who are Tom Bogasic age or younger might not remember this, but a young John Kerry uh, protested the Vietnam War after he got back home, and it was and the media loved it because he was a Vietnam veteran who hated the war, and he took his medals and he threw them at the White House. Very dramatic. And right. to protest the war, trashing his medals, and and listen, at the end of the day, you know, someone made the good point that. You know, Jeff Jacoby wrote writing for the Boston Globe. This is back in 2004. He goes, not one voter in 100 would vote against Kerry for trashing his Vietnam War medals at a, I guess, Capitol Hill demonstration. Sorry, I thought it was at the White House. When he was 27 years old. What he did with his combat decorations in 1971 has no bearing on who, whether or not he's fit to be president today. That long ago episode is an issue today only because Kerry's versions of it have changed so many times. And it just so happens to perfectly... Uh, typify his habit of saying one thing today and another thing tomorrow. Flip the whole idea was, you know, he kept changing his story. Well, I threw the medals, but they weren't my medals and all this stuff. And it's just like and now, and there he is with the medals, you know, at the coronation. So it just, to me, it's just like, it would almost have been more honest if you just said, no, I would never want to wear these medals because I didn't, I thought the war was unjustified, but it's like, so he wants his cake. He wants to eat it too. The guy just drives me absolutely crazy. So that's my, I just want to call him out for that. It's just a bunch of baloney. That's my number one. I got Ooh, two things. Double dipping. The Twilight Zone. 
So many of you have already heard this now. Tucker Carlson went to Twitter and he said, hey, look, I'm going to go right here and I'm going to start a, a new media uh, channel through Twitter. And that's kind of interesting. I think it, it's kind of an exciting thing to think about. Like, I guess you could subscribe. They're do, adding this new feature on Twitter where you can subscribe. And Twitter's going to say, Elon Musk said, I'm not going to, we're not going to get any money for the first 12 months. Let everyone, all these people add, add their Twitter shows or whatever. And it will only take like, you know, 10 or 20% after that or something like that, which I thought was kind of reasonable. So he announced he's going to do this. Well, what's the Twilight Zone? But the, le the leftist media totally freaks out, right? Like they don't want him on Fox News, right? But then we decide, okay, fine. I won't go on Fox News. I won't have that big perch. I'll just go right straight to Twitter, straight to the people. And what did it? And so they're talking about this on MSNBC, and they bring in the old CNN guy Brian Stelzer, and they're like, "Well, what do you make of this?" He goes, "Will anybody be able to police what Carlson says, or is this the point? Is it just a free for all?" Yeah, that's the point. <laughs> <laughs> I just absolutely love this, like. People are you exercising their First Amendment right to them? free speech without being <laughs> that's policed. I mean, that's ex first off, what? really disappointed Tucker didn't accept our offer to come mm, to Catholic bummer. vote. You know, I thought we made a pretty good proposal, but you know, it is what it is. He went to Twitter, but that, that's exactly what he should have done. I'm glad he did it. I mean, it's this is the Rogan route, yeah. or essentially. I know we even said we'd start Episcopalian vote for him. Uh, we'll yeah. make it work. I, I always, I always make the point to say if if uh, work gets a little too stressful or people give me too much to do, I say, look, I got a sweet offer from Protestant Vote, and I might head over there. Okay, so uh, be careful. Yeah, right. Uh, but yeah, I mean, this is exactly what he should have done. Go independent. He can now interview whoever he wants to interview, do whatever he wants. I mean, that is one of the best things that came from the internet. Is it just gives people the ability to go straight to consumer, not have to deal with higher ups and their narratives. It's like let's just unleash Tucker. Like let let him do what he wants to do. It's gonna be awesome. All right, so for my Twilight Zone this week, I want to take everyone on a little journey with me. So I was scrolling through Twitter, the free platform, uh, free speech platform, and NBC News uh, also partakes in the free speech platform. And so this is just was an exercise in no matter what you do, uh, you're going to have haters. So uh, there was a Colorado school board where now watch out these uh FBI watch list terrorists, um, parents, uh, they were upset about the direction of their local school board. And so they decided to run, uh, to get on the school board, to make changes. Now that's terrifying to some people. It's also terrifying to NBC news, apparently. So I'm going to read you the, a little bit of the Twitter thread and we'll go through it together. It'll be an exercise. So, uh, new conservatives took over a Colorado school board and then bullet points adopted a right wing group's social studies program did not reapply for grants to pay counselors, and 40% of the school's professional staff won't return next year. Okay, so they, they start from the beginning. They say conservative slate of candidates won't control the school board in Woodland Park. Uh, they started making changes. Teachers protested. Employees were barred from discussing the district on social media. Some were forced out. Uh, they talk about how this is from the MAGA playbook, uh, Divide, Scatter, Conquer. Uh, Trump was great at this in the, the, his first 100 days. Uh, and so some of the things that they were uh, accused of is uh, not caring enough about students because of the counselor deals. And one of the school board people, Ken Witt, he responds with, we are not the Department of Health and Human Services. Uh, we're here to provide, <laughs> prioritize academic achievement, not students' emotions. Now, uh, I, they're writing this in horror, 
But just reading that out loud makes me laugh because that's what I thought schools were about. Um, so they continue with the hit piece here. Uh, the grant for the students, or the district's mental health professionals didn't get reapplied. They're upset about that. Uh, there's going to be so many unforeseen consequences. And so if you just take to the comments on this, uh, this one really made me smile. Um, we got, okay, got it. Now where's the bad news? Uh, someone said, congrats on the hat trick. Aw, uh, the little Marxist gender bender teachers are upset. Poor thing. <laughs> so I don't think they got the response they were hoping for on Twitter. Uh, because on Twitter, you can actually express what you really think, uh, which is unfortunate. But I think this just really went to show me, you know, you can never, there will always be people, like if you fed every poor person or hungry person in the world, there there's going to be some version of NBC News that comes out to talk about how you're a monster and how what you're doing is evil and anti-democratic and wrong. Because this is just a case of parents getting involved, seeing a, a, an education system where students are not even meeting basic standards where these crazy teachers are pushing unbelievable uh, gross ideology things on kids and there's a lot of bloat that I think if you ask any teacher the worst part about teaching now is having to deal with administration and how many extra things are tacked on um, so running schools like a, a business and wanting to uh, achieve academic academic excellence is now considered right yeah, wing. Just, just get, get back, back to what education is, right? right. Yeah. It doesn't have to What is what is right wing social studies? Right wing I, social I studies. I think they're referring to When like I saw Hillsdale. that I was like, oh so teaching like <laughs> yeah, when you're talking about, I don't know, the founding fathers and the Federalist Papers, is that right wing these days? I can't even keep up. Well, I think I, Jeremy I Tate on Twitter he had a shout out to Jeremy. He he had a comment. He was like, oh no, now they will be reading people like Plato, Aristotle Chesterton and Maya Angelou, like he's just like listing the authors. Yeah, that, wait, they're not gonna wait. wait uh, they're not gonna read gender queer critical what? race theory. Yes. Is that yeah? What? <laughs> um, also, uh, Twitter Twitter adventures for Tom Pogasic. Uh, I did get blocked by Father James Martin this past week, um, and I was met with a lot of congratulations from the staff here, Catholic Mill, from the community. So what got me banned was uh, he was talking about how Fordham brought a black queer priest to come speak to the students about the, uh, the queer experience, a uh, much different message than Harrison Bucker. And so a uh, co coworker <laughs> here uh, made a meme that I thought was pretty funny. And so I said that Father James Warren is the final boss of Catholic intersectionality, shared the meme, and uh, I no longer can see Father James Warren's tweets. So if you're listening, Father James Warren, which you might be, yeah, um, he loves Catholic. I mean, folks. no ill will. I just thought it was pretty funny. So you can unblock me, so we can get back into a dialogue. Um, s s treat me in a very inclusive, synodality way would be nice, but uh, it doesn't seem like it's happening now. So maybe, maybe there will be a future Twitter encounter for the two of you, but not not mm -hmm. until not you're unblocked. unblocked. I guess this is correct. Yep. Um, Erica. Sure. Well, kind of continuing that theme of the queer community in Catholic New York. The Catholic Archdiocese of New York is as looking into a display that appeared last Sunday in a, at a St. Paul's church. I mean, this this church is known by um, many in the city to be very, um, very leftist. Very, it's called the Church of St. Paul the Apostle, and it's it's known as like the queer spiritual journey church. And they had an exhibit up by the altar. I didn't see in the pictures a tabernacle, so Jesus wasn't on the altar at the same time as these paintings of the queer trans experience. And the, the art exhibit was called God is Trans, A Queer Spiritual Journey. Um, and it, I mean, just it, this is 
total twilight zone. I wish I could say I was surprised and shocked. Not terribly. Um, the Archdiocese said they had no knowledge of this exhibition before it appeared. So the exhibit has been taken down, and the Archdiocese is going to look into it. But even parishioners um, who who go to this church, and they go there because it's known for being very pro-LGBTQ agenda. Um, they have, you know, priests come and give homilies, and Father James Martin appears there at, like, evening soirees or whatever. Um, but even parishioners at the church were like, this is a bridge too far that we have, you know, paintings up on the altar that are asking you to reflect on the truth that there is no devil. There's only experience. Or, you know, what does your That's God look quote. like to you? That's a direct quote from it. Yeah. yeah it, what is it? Here just, it is. Here it is. Just Ready? So um, there is no devil, just past selves. And the exhibit was meant to help you shed your old life and personhood in order to focus on your spiritual need. So this is just really dark stuff. This is about as non-Catholic, um, unchristlike as you can get. And of course, it was couched as, but this is our ministry and our outreach to people who are marginalized, um, you know, and and we have to be open to them. Um, so the the ministry... Of, I feel marginalized. Yeah, I do right too. I don't feel just very not welcome that at St. Paul's. In Catholic churches. Yeah. Oh, are yeah. you kidding me? You know... If the archdiocese had like, if it turned out that the archdiocese had like a sweatshop where like, you know, minors or like 10 to 12 years old were working oh, 15 man. hour shifts, uh, you know, knitting mm -hmm. t-shirts or something Shedding like that. And the press cells. found out about it. Like the archdiocese would be horrified. Like right. we got to shut it down. Right. Uh, yeah. It, it just, I mean, we're investigating uh, it. We didn't know it was Shutting happening. it down. What okay. an idea. The, the archdiocese. It, investigate it. You know, investigating should be right, bulldozing. Exactly. So this church is run by the Paulist Fathers, and they have a ministry out of this parish called Out at St. Paul, um, and it's their ministry of outreach to the gay, lesbian, bi, trans, queer community. It's not outreach, people. It's it's just it's opening all the windows and letting the walls fall down, and there's no church anymore because it's just there's no, like, here's what the gospel says. Here's the path to salvation. Here's the truth of Jesus Christ. There's none of that. Well, it's evangelizing yeah, a, different it's a different religion. religion. Yeah. It's exactly. the LGB it's a secular sex religion. Cult. Yeah, but uh, Pope Francis though did make sure to take the time not to condemn this, but rather to call the uh, Latin Mass people uh, that they have a nostalgic disease. Is the direct quote? So yeah, that was uh, rough. That was at a, a talk that he gave to a group of Jesuits while he was in Hungary, and uh, yeah, I loved. Uh, I think it was. Well, it's well okay, but it is important for the Pope to try to. To evangelize is, to non Catholics. He was really so out there on the margins the with the Jesuit fathers. Good job. Josh, you're not going to help me get unblocked by Father James Martin, okay? We got we got to stop with the Jesuit jokes. I think it was Father. I try. I need to get back a good I think terms. it was Father Dwight Longenecker. He had a comment on that. So Pope <laughs> no. Francis is like, we had to stop the nostalgia disease. And Father Dwight Longenecker on Twitter, he goes, the only nostalgia I'm terrified of in the church is nostalgia for the 1970s. <laughs> for real <laughs> bon, 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 bon. That's great. good job yeah and i think on that note well we wrap this one up uh happy mother's day to all the mothers out there we appreciate you thank you for giving us life uh ways to help the program and i've seen a lot of these has been tremendously helpful uh reviews so you can leave us a review specifically on apple Podcasts, spotify anywhere you get your podcast really uh leave us some comments if you were watching this on youtube uh what's up everyone uh, we love seeing you guys on the YouTube. Uh, we have a lot of great content there. So if you could subscribe, drop us a comment, like the video, that would be really helpful as well. For bonus material this week, like we mentioned earlier in the episode, we're taught, we talked to 
Senator uh, Tuberville. It's not Tuberville, Tuberville. Uh, Erica did a great job with that interview. It was talking about how the Department of Defense is handling abortions in the military and how he's kind of stopping that. So head right over to that one if you want more Loopcast. If not, we'll see you next week on Thursday. Looking forward to it. Have a great week, guys. Bye.